Hello, Sex Appeal listeners. This is Kit Elliott, one of your hosts for this show. After an extended hiatus, Katie and I have reassessed our stance on the true crime genre as entertainment and the way it affects the real-world victims involved in these cases. While this show has always striven to highlight injustices and prejudice in our society and legal system over anything else, we still want to make some changes to assure absolutely no harm comes from the stories we tell here. So, now, Sex Appeal Women on Trial will focus solely on historic true crime cases. That is, trials that took place a minimum of 150 years ago. All of our episodes already posted over the years that discuss cases that do not meet this new criteria have been removed, which is the main reason for this announcement. Because several episodes were deleted in their entirety, some remaining episodes may contain references to something said in one of them. We apologize for any confusion or continuity problems this creates. We hope you can understand the reasoning behind this decision. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Please be advised that this episode contains details and discussion of violence in graphic detail of one of the most gruesome murders in American history. Listener discretion is advised. Lizzie Borden took an axe Gave her mother forty wax When she saw what she had done Gave her father forty-one Wow, where are your sources? much oh good lord so much <laughs> but um, let's talk about something nice first do you want to go first or do you want me to go first i just totally spaced out for a second <laughs> i love how we're already so tired oh i literally just i don't know what plane of existence my soul just entered or exited but anyway something good um oh probably my something good is an explanation for why I have half a brain cell. Mm-hmm. Um, NaNoWriMo started technically this week. Yep. If you don't know, NaNoWriMo is National Novel Writing Month in which authors try to write 50,000 words of a manuscript in 30 days, which it's something good because like, hey, I'm getting a lot of writing done, but also I'm getting so much <laughs> writing done. <laughs> so my brain has um pieced out. I just got back from my cousin's house for a nice little family reunion. It was really nice. I got to see my aunt and cousin from Maine. So, I'm sorry. It's 10 o'clock. We had classes. We are tired. And rehearsals. Yeah. But this is going to be a two-part episode. So, we're going to amp ourselves up for a lot to cover today and then a lot to cover next episode. Yep. But uh, who are we talking about today? Do you want to say it? Do you want to say it? I do, but then I just realized that we have the intro already. <laughs> we have the um, Lizzie Borden song oh, already, so it's not really <laughs> so, a So uh, if, you, if you didn't pick on, up on that, we're talking about Lizzie Borden today. So Kit, what do you know about Lizzie Borden? I mean, just by being in sheer proximity to you, I feel like I have to know so much because of how <laughs> obsessed you are with this. I would say that's rude, but then again... <laughs> It's rude, 
but not wrong. I was actually fascinated with the case when I was little. That explains so much. Yeah, but l- listen. You got murder. You got drama. You got betrayal. You got the flaws of capitalism. You got hundreds of theories. You got several possible love affairs. There's like twist after twist after twist. And then when you grow up, you think you know everything. But then turns out you don't. Turns out there's more twist after twist after twist. Then you do research from another source. And there's another twist. And there's another twist. And then that information that you learned might be not real. And then you have to learn other information. Even like the police. There are so many things that people don't know if they're actually part of the case or if they're just quinky dinks. Katie? I am not okay. <laughs> I'm going to send you the picture <laughs> that I made earlier. We'll post it. We'll probably post it when we um, put in the hints, but... Let's name this episode Katie's Not Okay. <laughs> Katie's Pepe Sylvia. <laughs> That's what we'll call it. If you know Always Sunny, there's a scene when Charlie goes crazy because he's trying to figure out who Pepe Sylvia was when he was doing the mail. Yeah, while writing this script, I had several mental breakdowns just trying to find and add in information, deciding where things should go, if I should put it in this episode or next episode... In this episode, we're going to be talking about the lives of the victims of Andrew and Abby Borden, as well as Lizzie Borden, and what we know about the case leading up to its trial. In the next episode, we'll talk about the trial and the theories of who really killed Andrew and Abby Borden. Once again, we do not condone murder and other crimes here on Sex Appeal. But gosh darn, don't we love a good story. Let's begin. Let's start off with the victims, Andrew and Abby Borden. Andrew Jackson Borden was born September 13th in 1822. He was a self-made businessman who had became the head of one of the town's largest banks, a substantial property owner, and an undertaker. He was married twice. He married his first wife, Sarah Anthony Morse, in 1851. Together, they had three daughters, Emma Lenora Borden in 1851, Alice Esther Borden in 1856, who passed away in 1858 due to hydrocephalus, and Lizzie Andrew Borden in 1860. In 1862, Sarah passed away from uterine congestion and spinal disease. In 1865, Andrew married Abigail Dorothy Gray. Abigail or Abby was a 37-year-old, which was considered at the time a spinster. Yep. During this time, if a woman, if a woman, if a woman, during this time, if a woman doesn't marry by the age of 30, there's no hope. They shall be single forever. Might as well buy 10 cats to fill the void that your uterus will never achieve. I'm already there. You're not even 30. Not even 25. (laughs) I'm in my early 20s and I'm already a spinster. It is believed that this marriage was more for security rather than love. Andrew needed a mother for his daughters and she needed a man to support her. Oof. That sucks for both of them and also that that was just uh, how it was. Life be like that. Do we know anything else about Abby? That's it. I hate to say it, but no one really gave a crap about Abby. It was hard trying to find any information about her. You you literally said nothing about her. Yep, 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 yep. She is one... Yep! She is one of the two victims of one of the most gruesome crimes in Massachusetts history, yet we don't have that much information about her. Not even, like, a hobby? What do people back then, like, like, knitting? Con- contracting preventable diseases? She sneezed, and now she did. (laughs) Now she did. (laughs) So she really tried to be a mother figure to Emma and Lizzie, but they never really accepted her as part of the family. Growing up, they referred to her as Abby rather than mother. Yeah. 
understandable, but yeah. Abby tried. Like that's she, she tried. She really did try. Um, to kind of make it worse. In eighteen eighty four, about ten years before the murder, Abby's sister, Mrs. Whitehead, was having financial troubles. Mrs. Whitehead couldn't pay her rent and she was going to be kicked out of the house. So Andrew was happy to pay off Mrs. Whitehead's finances by buying her the house. This was great for Mrs. Whitehead and her family, but this obviously angered Emma and Lizzie. To them, why would their father give money to someone who wasn't even part of the family? Remember, she was the sister of his wife, but that didn't matter to them. This caused more of a rift between the sisters and their parents. After this, they referred Abby as Mrs. Borden. <laughs> By the time of his death in 1892, Andrew Borden was worth approximately $10 million in today's money. However, he was known to be very frugal with his money and wanted to do everything cheap. According to one Fall River legend, when he was an undertaker, he would cut off the feet of the corpses so he could cram them into undersized coffins that he got cheap. Yikes. <laughs> he would also sell eggs from the chickens on his family's barn. It was reported that Emma and Lizzie regularly argued with their father over money matters because his sisters did not receive as much money as they would like to have. Lizzie also went on a 19-week vacation to Europe that her father paid for her to do. So, okay, 1%, I'm sorry to hear your struggles. Must have been so hard. So Lizbeth, or Lizzie, Andrew Borden, was born July 19th, 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts. Both Lizzie and Emma grew up on their father and stepmother's estate at 92 Second Street. Both sisters never married. Is there, like, a reason why they didn't? Well, some sources say that it had to do with money. They didn't really fit in the rich people's social circles, and they also did not fit in the working class social circles. Rich men might have looked down upon them, and the women might have thought that they could do better than the working class. Also, this isn't my opinion, but some sources say that the two women were not described as conventionally attractive during their time. They were described as average at best. Ah. Uh. Yeah. Some other sources say that they could not have left the Borden house, but it's believed that the sisters stayed because they wanted their father's money. Apparently, Andrew sold the sisters a rental house that they could live in for $1, about $10 back in that time, but because they didn't want to spend money on maintenance, they sold it back to him for $5,000. To be fair, they would have been the landladies of this house, and every dollar that they would have gotten from renters would have went back to the house. One, I'm happy they made money, but you were given a house, something that they wanted, but because they didn't want to pay someone to cut the grass or fix the pipes, they got rid of it. I feel like we're going to say 1% problems a lot. Yeah, we will. Both sisters were involved in the Central Congregational Church, where Lizzie taught Sunday school, served as secretary treasurer for the Christian Endeavor Society, and was an active member of both the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Fruit and Flower League a charitable organization for the sick and needy. The family also had a 23-year-old live-in maid, an Irish immigrant named Bridget Sullivan. The Bordens called her Maggie because their previous maid was named Maggie. Rude. Andrew Borden also hired outside help to work on his farm. Technically, it's a barn. Like, they had no room for a full farm, and it was just a barn. But they're like, yeah, it's a farm. Like, no, it's a barn. Barn. At the time, the city of Fall River was industrial and profitable. There were factories for cotton, iron, and textile industries. There was a definite hierarchy of wealth. All the rich families lived on the top of the hill, while the lower class lived at the bottom near the water. 
this is very random, but I love when documentaries actually have actors who use a New England accent. Usually people think that people from the 18th and 19th century were sophisticated and talk properly with etiquette grammar. Listen, if you are in Massachusetts or New England, you know what accent you know it what is. sound like. <laughs> uh, one of my fa- <laughs> this is very random, but one of my favorite things was how they pronounce towns. So, oh, yeah, no one can pronounce Massachusetts towns correctly ever, and it's great. But even Massachusetts people cannot pronounce it properly. It's true. So there's a town called Taunton, but everyone says Taunton. Taunton? Taunton. Taunton? Taunton. Do you hear the difference? We get confused when someone says a name correctly. <laughs> there's even, like... GPSs that'll say towns that you're entering out loud. Taunton. Like, like what? <laughs> I'm sorry, where? Or the rotary. It's like, take a roundabout. Like, what is that? <laughs> and instead of Stoughton, they say Stoughton. Oh, I want to clarify something too. If you meet someone from Massachusetts, don't say park the car in Harvard Yard. There's a fence. That's illegal. There's no room. Also, you were stereotyping us. <laughs> also, that's, be more creative. Not all of us live in Boston. Yes, we all live in Boston. I was at the Boston Tea Party. <laughs> Tom Brady is my neighbor. Oh, <laughs> he was my neighbor for a moment. This one time he was. Where, what were we talking about? Where are we? Who are you? Who are you? <laughs> Life in the Borden household was described in court testimony as tense and uncomfortable. Although the family could have easily afforded a more modern house in a better part of the town, such as up on the hill in Fall River's most elite area, which is where the rest of Andrew's family lived, they lived in a converted two-floor dwelling at the bottom of the hill by the water. To be fair, all of his businesses were in the area where they lived, so I can see why he would want to live there. So Kit, have you ever been to the Borden's house or at least a hundred plus year old house? Never been to the Borden house. I have been to really old houses, especially like in D.C. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, they're weird as hell. They are. Well, my aunt and uncle live in a 120-year-old-ish farmhouse with an old barn. Old houses have a unique layout. Like what? Well, for example, they have no hallways. You have to travel through different rooms to get to your destination. Old houses like the Borden house is pretty much a house with a collection of walled-up rooms. The Borden house was also originally a two-family home, but Andrew changed it into a single-family home, therefore changing the layout even more. Some sources say that Andrew was so cheap they didn't have a bathroom or other necessities. Contrary to belief, there was a pan-type water closet in the basement of the home that was fed by the city water, so there was actually indoor flushing. The house also was central heated by radiators. There were no gas or electrical lights, but that was not necessarily uncommon at the time, especially in that neighborhood. Some other resource said that he was afraid of technology. I don't want to say afraid of technology, but he was a- it was just the idea that the house might catch on fire because electricity was so new. It was just a fear that they had. Technology is bad. Thomas Edison was a witch. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's mean, but kind of yes in this case. In May of 1892, Andrew Borden took an axe. I'm sorry. I'm just going to like, hey. Andrew Borden took an axe. Gave all the birdies. <laughs> no, this is sad. <laughs> Andrew Borden took an axe to the pigeon pen in the barn. There, he killed all the pigeons, stating that he was tired of the local children chasing and hunting them. Alright, first of all, screw you for killing innocent animals. 
Second of all, his thought process sounds like, hmm, kids are hunting my pigeons. Guess I'll kill the pigeons myself to prevent them from killing them. Kill two birds with one stone. Go away. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Get out. So unlike me, <laughs> Lizzie did not take this well. She was a huge animal lover and built the pen for the pigeons in the barn. She probably even named each of them. Same. Yeah. Around July of 1892, the family got into a huge argument. I don't really know what it was about, but both sisters left and took a vacation to the city of New Bedford. After the two-week vacation, Emma came back, but Lizzie took an extra four days before coming back home to the Borden household. About a month or so before the murders, the Borden house was robbed. Most of the contents were stolen belonged to Andrew and Abby. No one knew how the perpetrator got into the house because there were no signs of breaking or entering. After that, Andrew would lock his bedroom door and other doors within the house. However, he would leave the key on the counter in the sitting room. There was a theory that Lizzie stole the belongings, which is why Andrew would leave the key on display just to show dominance in the house. Oof. A lot of articles and documentaries states that Lizzie had a habit of shoplifting. It was said that the Bordens knew about this, and to avoid Lizzie getting into trouble, Andrew would have the shop owners write down the items she stole and he would pay for them later. However, this is actually a common practice for the time with rich children. Whatever they took, the shop owners would write down what they have taken and put it on the parents' tab. Therefore, this was technically not stealing. But once again, it must have been so hard for the 1%. Days prior to the murders, everyone in the house of Borden were sick. Abby even went to the family physician and neighbor, Dr. Seabury W. Bauer. She believed someone was poisoning their food, but proper refrigerators were not invented yet and food poisoning was technically common. The family also did not want to waste any food and would usually stretch the same meals for an entire week. According to Lizzie's neighbor and close friend, Alice Russell, Lizzie expressed the same concerns as Abby one day during a visit. Lizzie told Alice that days prior, she heard her father talk to an unknown man about financial problems the man was having. This man was most likely a hired hand for the family barn. The men argued and the unknown man threatened Andrew, and Andrew demanded him to leave the house. Lizzie stated that her father had a lot of enemies and was concerned for herself and her family. It is time for Let's Learn Something New! Today, we'll be talking about the theory that made Victorian people believe that there was life on Mars. It's ancient aliens, my dudes. Like I said, the Victorians believed that there was life on Mars. Giovanni Schiaparelli, an Italian astronomer, claimed that he had seen artificial waterways on Mars through his telescope. Apparently, these canals were all the evidence he needed to explain that extraterrestrial beings were on Mars and were attempting to either travel or commerce with Earth. This idea was popular and taken seriously by the public and even some scientists. In 1893, Boston scientist and Harvard graduate Percival Lowell believed that Mars citizens constructed the canals in order to tap the polar caps of the planet, their last source of water, in order to save their dying planet. The rest of the scientific community reacted negatively to Schiaparelli and Lowell's theories because you know, the theories are ridiculous. Later, in 1909, the Mount Wilson Observatory Telescope in Southern California was used to observe the features that Lowell spoke about. The telescope, which was far more powerful than the one that Lowell had, 
reveal that these canals were geological features that probably formed due to natural erosion. Sadly, this destroyed his career as a respected scientist. Remember, even Harvard graduates can be dumb as hell. This has been Let's Learn Something New. And now, back to our regularly scheduled crime talk. On the morning of August 4th, 1892, everyone in the House of Borden felt sick, but other than that, it started off as any other day. Andrew Borden's brother-in-law, John Morris, came over for a surprise visit and had spent the previous night in the upstairs guest room. He supposedly sent a letter prior to his visit, stating that he wanted to talk about business matters. You see, he and Andrew had a business together that was on the rocks. On the morning of the murders, he left shortly after breakfast around 8.56 a.m. to visit relatives a few miles away. Emma Borden left early as well to visit a friend all day. Bridget Sullivan stated that she was washing windows outside while Abby spent the morning cleaning the second-floor rooms and Lizzie was ironing in the basement. Bridget was the key witness before the trial, so most of what we know before the murders is from her account. Around 9 a.m., Andrew left the house to make his daily rounds of the bank and post office. At this time, Bridget had an excruciating headache and was feeling really sick. She went outside to vomit and stayed out there for at least 15 minutes. She then proceeded with her daily chores of cleaning the windows around the house. She did not know where Lizzie and Mrs. Borden were at that time, but assumed they were inside the house. Andrew Borden came home earlier than usual because he was feeling very sick. When he came back home around 10.45 a.m., he found the front door locked. It was very unusual that the front door was locked because no one remembered locking it. Kit, do you want to read Bridget's statement from the trial? Then I heard like a person at the door was trying to unlock the door, but could not. So I went to the front door and unlocked it. The spring lock was locked. I unbolted the door and it was locked with a key. There were three locks. I said, and Miss Lizzie laughed upstairs. Her father was out there on the doorstep. She was upstairs. After the awkward scuffle, Andrew then retired to his sitting room to relax. Lizzie then made small talk with her father, stating that Mrs. Borden had a note and had gone out to see a sick friend. In the dining room while Bridget was cleaning, she remembers Lizzie asking her if she was planning on going out that afternoon. She replied, stating that she didn't feel good and might stay in. Lizzie told her, If you go out, be sure to lock the door, for Mrs. Borden has gone out on a sick call and I might go out too. Bridget then asked, Miss Lizzie, who is sick? I do not know. She had a note this morning. It must be in town. The note was never found. Around 11 o'clock, Bridget was still feeling sick and decided to go up to her room in the attic to rest. She stated that she didn't hear anything from the downstairs. At trial, she stated, The next thing was that Miss Lizzie hollered, Maggie, come down. I said, What is the matter? She says, Come down quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. So, um, content warning. (laughs) The details of Andrew's body were very gruesome. Andrew Borden's lifeless body laid stretched out on the sitting room sofa and was struck in the head about 10 to 11 times in the face as well as the left side of his skull. His nose was nearly chopped off and one of his eyeballs had been split cleanly in two. It was suggested that he was asleep when he was attacked since his remains showed no sign of struggle or defense. After the discovery of Andrew's body, Bridget went downstairs. She saw Lizzie standing with her back to the screen door wearing a different dress from that morning. Bridget went into the sitting room and Lizzie said, Oh, Maggie, don't go in. I have got to have a doctor quick. Go over. I've got to have the doctor. If you do not remember, she was referring to their neighbor, Dr. Bauer, 
who was actually at a house call at this time. When Bridget got back to the house, she asked Lizzie where she was during the attack. She claimed, I was out in the backyard and heard a groan and came in and the screen door was wide open. She says, Go and get Miss Russell. I can't be alone in the house. Eventually, Alice Russell and their other neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, came to the house to be with Lizzie. Dr. Bauer returned from his house call and examined the body. Bridget states, Dr. Bowen came out from the sitting room and said, He is murdered. He is murdered. All right, listen, Lizzie, I don't think your dad's going to bounce back from that, so I don't know what the point of calling in a doctor was. <laughs> well, you could say that she was in a state of shock, she didn't know what else to do, or you could argue that she needed witnesses. Mm -hmm. Around 11.15 a.m., a newspaper distributor, John J. Cunningham, reported to the police that there was trouble at the Borden residence, but not before calling three local newspapers before the authorities. I don't know if he knew that Andrew was dead, but he probably saw something happening and just wanted to spread the hot gossip. Imagine if Twitter was around. I just imagine that, even not even just Twitter. I remember that um, Bye Bye Birdie scene where everyone has oh like their God. cell phones and like, have you heard? But What's the word? But Hummingbird. <laughs> but instead of Kim and Hugo getting pinned, it's Andrew and Abby are murdered. They got murked. Oh no. <laughs> I'm so sorry, headphone users. <laughs> um, throughout the investigation, you will notice that the police were not properly equipped. Cunningham did not tell the police that there was a murder, so they just sent one officer, George Allen, to the house. They probably thought it was another robbery or maybe domestic problems. After coming to the house and talking to Dr. Bauer, Officer Allen left to call in more authorities and left the household. Around 11.35 a.m., Dr. Bowen left the woman to send a telegram to Lizzie's older sister, Emma. After he left, Bridget said, Oh, Lizzie, if I knew where Mrs. Whitehead was, I would go and see if Mrs. Borden was there and tell her that Mr. Borden was very sick. She says, Maggie, I am almost positive I heard her coming in. Won't you go upstairs to see? Oh, jeez, I can guess what happened when Bridget went up the stairs. Bridget refused to go upstairs alone in case a murder was still in the household. Mrs. Churchill agreed to go upstairs with her. As Bridget was walking up the stairs, she turned her head to the landing while peering into the guest bedroom. Bridget discovered the body of Abby Borden. So, warning again, skip the next 10 seconds if you're squeamish. Her skull was crushed by 19 blows, as well as wounds in her shoulder blades. She was found face down with a pool of blood surrounding her body. She had no defense wounds on her body, and there was only blood on the, her and the rug. Any comments? Nasty. Yuck. Gross. Ew. Ah. Several sources contradicted each other, stating that the autopsies of both bodies were conducted in either the sitting room where Andrew was killed or the dining room. I mean, either way, not ideal places to conduct autopsies. But hey, it's the Edwardian era. Yeah, we're gonna be saying that a lot. <laughs> also, um, Lizzie and Emma continue to live in the house after the murders. So, like... Nasty. It's nasty. Gross. It's horrible. Ew. Ah. Uh. Can you stop? <laughs> People have headphones. <laughs> But I was going to say, if it was in the dining room, I don't want to be eating muffins. <laughs> A <laughs> morning like, bagel. Huh. There's still some blood stain there. That's like, the jam. Gross. The examiners declared that Abby was killed at least an hour before Andrew. 
because there was a past suspicion of poisoning, both victims' stomachs were removed and shipped to Dr. Edward S. Wood, professor of chemistry at Harvard University, to be tested for poison. Ooh, our good old friends at Harvard. After the body of Abby was found, Lizzie was given a morphine sedative to calm her nerves. With a lack of evidence and no suspects yet, Police Chief Marshall Hillard questioned everyone who was in the Borden house at the time of the murders. Remember, Emma was visiting friends and John Morris was visiting relatives about a mile away from the Borden residence. In her original theory, Lizzie stated that someone, possibly someone who hated Andrew or the reported man he was talking to, seemed to have come into the house and killed Abby when Lizzie was ironing downstairs in the basement and when Bridget was sick outside. The killer then waited in the house for the perfect opportunity to kill Andrew. Cool statement, but police started to question this theory. First, the front door, basement door, and the side doors were locked. Second, even if an assassin had found his way inside, the timing between the murders seemed odd. Why kill Abby and then wait to kill Andrew? Also, why kill them in the first place? Nothing was stolen, so it wasn't a robbery gone wrong. Both Bordens showed no defense wounds, so they clearly didn't fight back or acknowledge their attacker before it was too late. While being interviewed by the police, Lizzie was very calm and collective and showing very little emotion. However, she gave shifting accounts of her whereabouts during the time of the crime. She said that she was downstairs ironing handkerchiefs when Abby was killed, however, did not hear the sound, which is very hard for me to believe. However, according to Bridget, Lizzie was at the top of the stairs when her father came home. Lizzie was at eye level of her stepmother's corpse in the upstairs guest room when her father returned. If she turned her head, she would have been able to see her stepmother very easily. After greeting her father, Lizzie said that she returned ironing, but also said that she walked outside to the barn and searched for a sinker, a weight for a fishing line, or a piece of lead to fix the screen. She then ate a few pears that she picked in the backyard trees. But, like I said before, she was under morphine while telling her stories. Police thought it was strange that upon discovering her father's body, she did not look for her stepmother. First, she claimed that Abby had received a note and gone outside, but, like I said, the note was never found. Later, she said that she heard Abby coming into the house, even though evidence showed that she was dead at the time. Remember earlier how I said that Abby had no defense wounds on her? This would indicate that this was a surprise attack or the killer was someone she trusted and didn't feel threatened by their presence. Police believe that this was also a crime of passion and hate since hitting someone once with a mysterious object would usually kill them and 19 times is kind of an overkill. Uh -huh. Investigators learned that if Andrew had died before Abby, she would have inherited his entire estate and much of it would have been passed to her family after her death. Police found it suspicious that Lizzie was not acting or grieving like someone whose father and stepmother were just murdered. But then again, she was drugged by doctors and police to keep her calm. Doctors and police. Here you go. We don't want you to be a hysteric woman. Also, doctors and police. Why are you not acting like a hysteric woman? Obviously guilty. While searching the house, the police found a hatchet in the cellar, but was never proven to be the murder weapon. It was also a hatchet with a broken handle. Some sources say that it had blood on it, but it wasn't human blood. It was animal blood. So it might have been... From the pigeons? Yeah, from the pigeons, but it doesn't say it was from, from the Bordens. Later in the evening, a worker from D.R. Smith's drugstore, Eli Benz, stated that the day before the murders, he allegedly saw a woman who resembled Lizzie trying to buy piercic acid or hydrocyanic acid, which was sold only under a doctor's prescriptions. 
the woman claimed that she wanted to buy the acid to clean a seal skin coat. Ah, the Edwardian era. Only the finest seal skin coats imaginable. Oh, to be part of the 1%. <laughs> to clean your seal skin coat. Because it was prescription only, he declined selling it to the woman. Eli stated that if he could see her, he might be able to recognize Lizzie as the woman he declined the acid to. Around 8.30 p.m., he was brought to the Borden residence and identified Lizzie as a woman who tried to buy the acid. However, the only lighting in the kitchen was a poorly lit lantern, and she could have been easily misidentified as someone else. Kit, how are you doing right now? I'm mad. I'm big mad. You can see how I'm feeling just looking at this research, not just finding like, oh, is this relevant? Oh, is this relevant? It's like, why are you like this? <laughs> why, why was it done like this? At the crime scene, the police did not find a drop of blood on Lizzie. However, Bridget noticed that Lizzie was wearing a different dress than what she was wearing that morning. The police kept an eye out on the Borden sisters, especially Lizzie. On Saturday, August 6th, the mayor ordered the funeral director that after the graveside services, the bodies of the Bordens were not to be buried, but stored in the vault to conduct a second secret autopsy. The sisters were not notified of this. During this time, authorities still searched the house, looking through the bedrooms, and trying to find evidence. Let's pretend for a minute that both the sisters are completely innocent, and then step into their shoes. Your father and stepmother were brutally killed in your own home, and you don't know why. You see your father's horribly disfigured face, something that you would never get over. Then they perform an improvised autopsy in your own sitting and or dining room table, that you will now be eating at every morning. You're also probably thinking, if I wasn't at my friend's house or doing chores around the house, would I have been killed? And then, while in shock and under the influence of drugs that the police officers gave you, they are then asking you questions about where you were that day, and you have a hard time answering. Later that night, when you try to recover in the same house, at the scene of the crime, some dude you may or may not have seen before accuses you of looking like a woman who asked for poison the other day. Above that, when you are trying to pay respects to your recently deceased relatives, the police are still reading your house and doing another autopsy of your parents. It really sucks. Well, to make their series of unfortunate events even worse, in another bit of circumstantial evidence, Alice and neighbors saw Lizzie burning a dress in the oven a few days after the murder. Lizzie claimed that it had been splattered with paint and that she always burned dresses that were no longer fit to wear. However, Alice still reported it to the police as the possible dress Bridget saw Lizzie wear that morning of the murder. Due to the circumstantial evidence, not many Fall River citizens were surprised that on August 11, 1892, Lizzie Andrew Borden was arrested for the alleged murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Appeal. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can always know when to come back for more cases of women on trial. Sex Appeal Women on Trial was brought to you by us, Kit Elliott and Katie Clark. Music is Dark Tranquility by Anno Domini Beats. Special thanks to Framingham State University's WDJM Radio. We would like to thank Melin Costello from MC Design Photography for creating our logo. You can find her on Facebook and Instagram under mcdesign underscore photography. Remember to leave a five-star rating and review us on iTunes. And follow us on Instagram at Sex Appeal Podcast and Twitter at Sex Appeal Pod. You can also visit our website, sexappealpodcast.weebly.com for additional content, including
more details about our episodes, like written transcriptions and pictures. If you have any questions about our show or suggestions for future episodes, please email us at sexappealpod at gmail.com. Thank you.